You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The big story of the week that we were following was Hurricane Ian as it tore through the southwest Florida coast and caused catastrophic flooding, destroying infrastructure, and leaving millions without power. Thousands of residents were trapped amid flooded homes and shattered buildings. There was a bridge to a barrier island that was destroyed, and a historic waterfront pier was also destroyed. There have been some confirmed deaths, but the number is expected to rise. In all of this, one of the biggest curiosities are those that decide to hunker down and weather the storm despite evacuation orders. Some stay because they are defiant, others for fear of returning to nothing and some just don't have the money to leave. For more on why some choose to stay put during extreme weather events, we'll speak to Jared Leone, contributor to the Washington Post. The people I spoke to, they lived in a mobile home park, and for them, their neighbors left, and they didn't have that option. Some of them did, but chose not to. They just would prefer to stay there. They cited that their places have been there for 50 or 60 years, and they've been through other storms, so... Why not try and try the best to make it through this one? They had concerns about the winds, but they just kept tracking the storm. And once it was south of uh, our area, they decided to ride it out and, and yeah. uh, hope for the best. Yeah, some of the people that you spoke to there in that mobile home, I took note that were, you know, in their 80s. You know, so they were very defiant. And I mentioned, as I mentioned before, they said, you know, we've rained out storms before. It's never been as bad as they said. Uh, one of the guys said, I'm not afraid of anything. That kind of confidence, I guess you can call it, builds up over time. They've been through this so many times. Certainly. Uh, for them, it seemed like it was just another day. He, he was out tending to his yard and adjusting all the different, he had a, a lot of decorations and plants and other things that you'd see in a yard like um and and he just he didn't clean them up he just was going to keep an eye on them he didn't think the storm was going to knock him over and i drove by there after the storm and the place looked great i guess it, he he might not go if another storm comes by either i don't think it changed their minds but they kind of treated it just like an, another day they all were prepared but didn't seem too concerned of the impending 
storm and the forcefulness of it. And that's the thing, you know, whether people can be defiant or whatever and not leave, they do prepare. So they are getting ready. As I mentioned, they've been through it a lot of times before. For some, cost is such a big thing. You know, they feel like to go uh, to pay for gas, to get put up in a hotel, the cost could be so overwhelming that it's just not worth it. In that sense of things, they'll decide to stick it out at their homes. And the fear of not returning to a home either. You know, they say, if I'm going to spend all this money, it's like they just decidedly rather stay put. There's that. And there's also, I have met with other people who have evacuated in the past and the storm is tracked to where they've evacuated. And they said, we would have been fine just staying at home. So, you know, there are a, a number of different reasons and experiences that people go through that when it comes to that time, they decide that, yeah, we're just as safe here as we are on the road or trying to find another place. Or if money's a consideration, it's just easier to stay there or the peace of mind of not going hundreds of miles away or even a few hours away and then returning to rubble or worse. So You mentioned uh, before we got on the on the uh, interview here, you mentioned you're in like the Clearwater, Florida area. So, you, you know, you've been through these types of storms before. You know, how did uh, you ride this thing out? How, how has the devastation seemed, you know, now that the hurricane has passed for now? Yeah, the last real storm we had here was Hurricane Irma about five years ago. And during that storm, I had lost power for almost a week. And other people in the area had power loss for a lot longer. Um, in our county here, well, we were largely spared. And um, the outage maps that I've seen, they've gotten, um, you know, most everybody's back powers back. There were about 200,000 people out and about 100,000 people. So about half are with power already before the end of today. So I, you know, this storm uh, driving around town, not to take away the magnitude from where it did hit, but here, like I said, we were largely spared. And a lot of what was out was debris. And I was out at the beach today. There was a guy kiteboarding and another guy was out uh, with his metal detector. And so there were some people that were, um, I guess, kind of, treating it again like uh, another day at the beach almost or taking advantage of some of the better than um, expected weather conditions out there. So, And, and then so um, what's next for the state? I know we've kind of moved into these rescue efforts and uh, other parts of the state where it did really hit hard. Uh, what are we expecting next? Yeah, I was uh, at a press conference today where a Coast Guard rescue team had uh, rescued seven people in four different missions. It was throughout the whole night and they said that they're continuing to make rescue missions and prioritize rescuing people. And yeah, I think that's what we're going to see is as, as the storm kind of um, recedes the waters and the wind kind of dies down, there will be more first responders who are able to rescue yeah. people and, and find out just what the extent is. And that's just here in Florida, right? They're saying the uh, the storm is expected to uh, gain some more power and then on to the Carolina. So again, just uh, more people in for this. And, and, and even there, right, there will be more people who choose to weather out the storm. So we'll keep an eye out for all yeah. of them. Jared Leone, contributor to the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. The big space news from Monday was NASA's successful DART mission, the first planetary defense test. For this test, NASA flew an unmanned spacecraft right into an asteroid to see if the impact could disrupt its orbit. It will still take some weeks before we see some completed data, but for now, it worked, and it made for some very compelling video as it made impact. For more on this, we'll speak to Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. But first, 
Let's listen to the official NASA trailer for this mission. In a galaxy where asteroids have pummeled planets for billions of years, now one planet strikes back. For the first time in our planet's history, NASA will test an asteroid deflection technique. It's the first planetary defense method of its kind. NASA's double asteroid redirection test will intentionally ram itself into an asteroid and alter its orbit forever. At the crossroads of science fiction and reality, DART is part of our plan to defend planet Earth against potential future impacts. The test to protect the future of our planet takes place today. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, just seeing like that scattering of boulders like come into relief is pretty amazing. Yeah, because it started off as a, as a pixel, really, like just a white dot in a black background. And, you know, as you got closer to it, you know, it became this very clear rock. So tell us a little bit more about this mission, why NASA decided to go through with something like this. So it's really sort of the best insurance policy, I think. So NASA has been kind of in the planetary defense business for a long time. Like they track potentially dangerous asteroids and comets that come relatively close to Earth. Just keeping an eye on things to make sure that, you know, nothing is going to surprise us or, or head our way that we're not prepared for. And part of being prepared is actually figuring out how to potentially deflect an asteroid if one is found on a collision course with Earth. And that's really what this entire mission was about. It's basically an attempt to kind of use this technology demonstration, to use this test using the, the DART spacecraft to slam into this tiny asteroid, see if they can move it to the degree that they want to. Uh, and then if they need to eventually scale up that technology if there is some larger threat headed toward Earth at some point that they need to take care of. Yeah, the asteroid's name was Dimorphos. They were estimating that this impact would really only change its orbit about 1%, but that would be enough to push it off its trajectory. And they're still going to take some weeks at least to figure out if it actually worked. Yeah, exactly. And they had a lot of other telescopes, like ground-based observatories, and then also the JWST and Hubble Space Telescope, keeping an eye on the system as the actual impact occurred. So they're going to have a lot of data about what happened to this little asteroid. Now, this is, um, you know, let's talk about real-world applications, right? Let's say we see an asteroid coming down the pipeline. This thing was launched 10 months ago, uh, you know, in last November. So there's a lot of planning that needs to go in on this. I mean, if something, you know, an asteroid does uh, seem like it's going to be in our orbit or something like that, how early are we going to be able to tell that it could be on a collision course with Earth? I mean, I think the earlier the better with this kind of thing. But also, like, NASA is able to, just from sort of and not just NASA, but other other space agencies and institutions are able to, from just a couple of sort of measurements of an orbit of an asteroid, be able to extrapolate out the future orbits of these space rocks, right. comets. They really are able to do some incredible calculations, like out to, you know, 100 years <laughs> to know whether these so, so we'll have plenty of advance notice if something crazy is going to be happening. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah hopefully. 
We're talking about the NASA DART mission. It's the double asteroid redirection test. Now, what's going on right now is that, uh, you know, obviously NASA and Congress, they are taking this these asteroid threats seriously. There was kind of a, a program to uh, set up a new telescope to keep a better eye on these types of things. But there's been some issues with it, with not getting as much funding or, or not as much money in the budget recently. What are we seeing as kind of the future of these types of programs? Yeah, that's right. So this one telescope called Neo Surveyor is uh, an infrared telescope that is actually supposed to be in space. And it's what scientists say that we need in order to find the rest of kind of the dangerous space rocks that we don't you know, know about yet. And basically, the entire scientific community is behind it. Congress is behind it, has bipartisan support, except in the most recent NASA budget, it actually was defunded by $130 million, which led to, has already led to layoffs on the team, building the telescope and responsible for it, and is going to cause a replan in the entire telescope. And it's also resulted in a delay of two years to this telescope. And it's not clear exactly why that budget was reduced so much. But I think a lot of folks in the community are pretty disappointed that it's not going to get the launch yeah. when, when they were hoping for it. And, you know, something to watch out for is that these types of things, at least these telescopes, are a little more important than ever as we kind of see these other companies start launching a lot of satellites. So there's a lot more clutter in space. It's harder to detect certain things. You know, we're looking at companies like uh, SpaceX and OneWeb. And so these satellites start posing more of a problem when we're looking at the grand picture of space. Yeah, that's right. Ground-based observatories really are crucial to looking for these asteroids and comets. And one of the times of day that they are, are most used is sort of twilight and at dusk. And that's also when satellites like Starlink are most visible. So having these large surveys of the sky are really important to be able to find these faint space rocks but they're also potentially being impacted by these mega constellations that are being built. So it's even more important than ever, like you said, to have a telescope in space that's dedicated to doing this kind of work. Well, NASA's DART mission on Monday hitting the asteroid was a success. We'll see if the trajectory does change and if there's further success for this mission. But for now, uh, there was impact and uh, the video, if you haven't seen it, go out and check it out. It is pretty amazing. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> In an effort to fight current labor shortages and as robotic technology gets better, you'll soon start seeing robots manning the fry station at some fast food restaurants. 
a company called Miso Robotics, has been developing Flippy the Robot, initially to flip hamburgers. But since the greatest need for restaurants is working the fryer, where most backups and accidents happen, they rebranded the robot. For more on where this robot is already working to make you fries, we'll speak to Laura Riley, business of food reporter at the Washington Post. Flippy started as kind of a solution in search of a problem. So Mike Bell and the people at Miso Robotics thought, well, you know, what's this kind of ubiquitous food thing that may be a pain point for, for fast food restaurants? And they thought, oh, flipping the burgers. And so they took the idea to White Castle and White Castle said, yeah, not so much. Really, where we have kind of our own headaches is at the fry station. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. No one wants to work the fry station. And it's where things get backed up. You know, if you have a late night rush, the fryer is where things bog down. So, you know, and at a, and at a place like Jack in the Box, which is where they've employed Flippy recently, 60% of their food goes through the, fr- the fryer, you know, from those tacos to the egg rolls to rings and fries, etc. You need someone or a lot of someone to drop those baskets into the oil and to kind of time them acro- appropriately. And it turns out Flippy is really perfect at, there are like eight cameras associated with these designs. And it's a this kind of articulated armature that will drop the baskets and time it appropriately and pull the basket out and dump whatever it is into the either the fry, the big fry basket or wherever it needs to go. So they're rolling it out in San Diego with the aim of doing maybe a dozen or so more restaurants this coming year. And it remains to be seen whether it's cost effective. I mean, you have to figure out at what point do you have that return on investment and how nicely do the robots play with the humans and vice versa. (laughs) Yeah, that's the new math that these restaurant owners, these franchise owners, whatever it may be, are having to do, right? And the larger question, too, is what happens to the workers that might get displaced by the robot? Tell me a little bit about cost, because there was millions of dollars going into developing these robots. But for the uh, companies themselves, for Jack in the Box in this instance that we're talking about, there's thousands of dollars in costs that go to renting this out and installing it. Yeah, so it's about 5000 bucks for installation and about 3500 bucks a month for rental per flippy. Obviously, that is kind of commensurate with uh, one full-time worker, right? I mean, it's, it's, that is not a, a, a prohibitively expensive addition. And I'm assuming that as these things scale, the, the, those prices will come down a bit. So you really want to only employ something like this in a high volume restaurant, you know, where you're running that fry later 24 hours a day. And, you know, as we've seen, like, in the, you know, it's not new for restaurants to have robotics, but a lot of times historically they've been more consumer facing kind of value added funny, almost entertainment. In yeah. the Those sushi making robots. I and mean, we've seen a whole bunch of things come and go. This is really much more utilitarian the, I went to the jack-in-the-box in question, and it wasn't like they were broadcasting this in the dining room or at the, in the, the drive through line that, oh, did you know that your fries are being made by a robot? <laughs> it, it, this is a very, you know, this is not about like, woo-woo, how fun. This is a really kind of a, a very utilitarian solution to a problem they've been having. And, and what happens when things go wrong? I mean, now you can't, uh, you know, have... Well, a fellow employee fixed the robot, right? You're going to have to have an engineer or something come in and, and address the issue. Well, for now, they have an engineer on site to do troubleshooting. But over time, so there are cameras that link back up to Miso Robotics in Pasadena. So they're watching in real time when 
Flippy loses his mind, and he does. You know, I watched Flippy completely freak out. So tacos, Flippy has it was tacos that messed Flippy him up, had right? Trouble with tacos, yes. <laughs> so I, I mean, I was like standing there, and I watched Flippy kind of start getting all stuttery and weird, and I was like, "Uh oh, Flippy's having a moment," you know. <laughs> and so Flippy basically dumped this whole row of tacos into the oil, and the, the human had to kind of fish him out and correct the problem. So you know, there are some tiny bobbles to overcome, but clearly there is AI involved and Flippy will self-correct over time, uh, especially with the kind of robotics team people pouring over the films in hindsight, you know, they'll, they'll work it out. And I'm sure that it will be the case that Jack in the Box or whatever fast food restaurant will have to have someone on site who is a kind of a, a flippy expert. Right. Um, so. And to the point of the workers, right, the people that could be displaced by robots, inc- increasing automation, all that. What do executives uh, say about this? Uh, representatives from Jack in the Box, you know, what do they have to say for their part? Well, I think that there's a lot of incentive there to not say that these are re- are replacing humans, right? They're saying, oh, you know, the fry station person just got a promotion and now they have an assistant. But we know there are 200,000 fast food restaurants in the country, millions of workers. Uh, uh, you know, it's often a first, those hairnet jobs are first time jobs for a lot of teenagers or for people who have retired and maybe don't have the savings that they thought they would. A lot of times, you know, it's it's first jobs for people where English may not be a native language. So it's it's a, a job you can do with with minimal uh, English language skills. So, yeah, there are some real concerns about five years from now, 10 years from now, how many of those jobs will be subsumed by robots. Well, we'll see what happens with this. I mean, it, it makes sense to have some of these robots to do some of these uh, hard kind of uh, jobs, right? Uh, things that people don't want to do. We have a labor shortage right now, especially in the fast food industry. Uh, robotics is still developing other things. Coffee forecasters uh, that, that, that makes uh, pours for Panera. They're working on Sippy, which is a drink fulfillment robot. Chippy to make chips, see, fry and season chips at Chipotle. So there's a lot of stuff on the horizon and we'll see how seamless they make it into the fast food industry. Laura Riley, business of food reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.